the Killer Bees. Definitely a fan of the Killer Bees. Don't sweat the technique. Live from the Veritex Community Bank Studios, here comes the fastest three hours in Houston sports radio. Here's Joe Blank and Jeremy Branham. What up, H-Town? Hey, how we doing, doing, doing? That was a weak attempt by Spence. Let me show you how it's supposed to be done. Ooh, what up, H-Town? Hey, how we doing? Whose was better, Spencer or Blankers? 713-780-3776. It's the Killer Bees. It is a Wednesday edition of the Killer Bees on ESPN 97.5 and ESPN 92.5. He's Blank on Branham. It's Joe George behind the glass, assistant to the regional manager. Andrew Carlson thought that was hilarious. He was uh, yeah, ear to ear with that smile that he had in there. Simple minds, easily amused. It's yeah. fine. Pretty good, pretty good. Spence trying to get back at the bees, understand. Uh, Astros won a baseball game uh, yesterday. Very nice of the Astros to win a baseball game. Look, Justin Verlander, vintage JV. His stuff was phenomenal yesterday. Struck out a season-high nine. And look, the offense again was very, very good. Yeah, the offense was good. The pitching was exactly what we wanted when we got off the air yesterday and said, look, we want him to, to shove. We don't want him to just have a quality start. He can do better than that. He did. He did his part. Uh, we'll hear about it later. And the fact that, you know, the, the ever-tinkering, ever-perfectionist Justin Verlander did some work, and it worked out for him. But all's well that ends well. The entire prescription, although how convoluted the pregame was and how everything went down, uh, the results were great. The, the late night results even better. And here you are sitting a game out of first place in the loss column, a half game uh, or, you know, in the standings. It's fantastic. What happened in the pregame? The fact that Jordan was in the lineup oh, and then the fact the that he wasn't. Fiasco. And then the fact that, you know, Yiner, who was you and I both thought should have been in the lineup against a righty. Not only then, then Dusty in his pregame scrum is talking about how, you know, we should probably give him a break at first base. Singleton's scheduled to be at first base. Then Singleton's the DH and Yiner's at first base. Yeah, that was that was bizarre how that all happened. Now, some of that was out of Dusty's control, like Jordan slamming his finger in a door uh, out of Dusty's control. Um, look, Singleton had a good game, too. Did, like two, the, two hits. the two things that we were critical of from Dusty yesterday, I, mean, I think fair criticism. You know, Yiner not playing against a right. He's malpractice for a manager. But the two things that we kind of brought up that were kind of maybe nitpicky, maybe worth conversations, kind of played out okay. You know, using Ryan Presley in that five-run game two days ago, that's not a practice that I want to exercise routinely. You didn't lead him yesterday. You're up 7-1 to one entering the ninth yeah. inning. Montero gives up a couple. You didn't, you didn't need Ryan Presley. It, there wasn't, like, we were a little annoyed that he used Presley in a, in a, in a game where you led by a lot of runs. But it only hurts you if the next game's a competitive one and a close one, and it wasn't. So you can't criticize Dusty for that, at right. least in, in hindsight. And then secondly, the John Singleton being in the lineup, the guy had a couple of doubles, so you can't criticize that in hindsight. It kind of played out for the, the two you know, questionable Dusty moves. They played out in his favor. Yeah, they did. Uh, just the fact that, like I said, it's crazy that you, you say you, you know, you're, you're kind of going to ease off Yiner at first base a little bit, but then Yiner's at first base. And, yeah, you're right. I mean... Singleton is a guy that we've said, we've seen, I didn't want to release him outright or have to DFA him, but we we talked about would he be a guy that might be the odd man out with Abreu coming back, uh, and yet when he gets in the lineup last night, he gets two doubles and shows you that maybe he should stick around. Abreu is back, by the way, too. The, the club announcing 20 minutes ago that Jose Abreu has been reinstated from the 10-day uh, IL, and who they're optioning down is David Hensley. So you're a little thin with infielders right now until Greg Kessinger gets off of these health and safety protocols that he's currently on. So Abreu's back. The lineup's already out today for the Astros as well. 
No, no, you're on Alvarez. No, you're on that little finger that got caught up in the door is going to cost him a a second game, which is not terrific. They're, the Astros going out. Tuve Bregman Tucker today. Chaz in left. Yiner DH is a Brayu's back in the lineup at first. You know, maybe this stint on the IL will get him going. And then Pena, Myers, Maldonado. So that's the Astros' nine today. Still no Jordan Alvarez with that jam finger, which is too bad. Too bad that injury him cost the, him two days. See him in the dugout last night? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, the hands were in the, in the pockets of the sweatshirt most of the night, too. Because I think it's the international man of mystery. I mean, everybody's trying to figure out, was it a car door? Was it a house door? How bad was it? Was it really a door? Because having been a part of sports teams where injuries can be told... you. To the media as one thing, but completely another one behind the scenes. I'm just curious if it happened and it really was a door. But if it's going to cost him multiple games, timing isn't perfect for this one. Yeah, the conspiracy theory. I, I like a good conspiracy theory. I like to put the tinfoil hat from time to time. I don't. I don't understand the logic of this one. Making up that he stuck, that he lost his finger in the door. Like, that one doesn't make. That one doesn't add up to me. Yeah. I, well, you know, and I, some of the ones that I've been through. It's because whether contractually or otherwise, guys were doing something they weren't supposed to do. And so instead, they kind of, you know, fluffed it and said it was something else. It was a kitchen accident or something like that, just to kind of avoid further investigation into it. But I just, I don't, the whole thing to me was, and the time it came out just seems weird. Yeah, I just, I don't, it's too weird for me to, to be like a make to question it. Yeah, I just, why, if you wouldn't embarrass Jordan Alvarez that way, like you would say that he was sick or you would say that he slept on his pillow the wrong way again. I don't, I'm not, I don't think that this is a, you know, a cover up by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the offense was good. The seven runs. We mentioned, you know, Kyle Tucker hitting that home run, his lone hit in that, uh, that first inning, which was a moonshot. Singleton was good, had a couple of doubles, but, but Justin Verlander was the story of the night. He was fantastic. Uh, shutting down the Red Sox yesterday. You know, Dusty talked about it after the game, said he really would have liked Verlander to go one more inning. He got a little bit high pitch count stuff there in the fifth or sixth, but I'm taking that, ju- obviously. Obviously, you're taking that Justin Verlander performance a night ago, every single start that he makes. And look, he was dominant. Like, he, he his stuff was was electric. That fastball had a couple of miles per hour more on it. The curveball was nasty. That looked like vintage Verlander. That looked like an ace. That looked like the ace at the top of your rotation. No, it really did. And it, it comes at a time when you sorely need something like that from one of your best pitchers. And the fact that his last start was a bit shaky and rocky, uh, you capitalize even more. You know that you still have a leader, uh, a veteran, uh, a perfectionist, and a guy that has plenty still left in the tank. And based on the fact that he did find a way to get his velocity back, his control was back, and Lord knows his fiery attitude was back. And you love all those things. Coming off the team meeting and and, and being able to put two wins together, but the way they've been able to put them together and the guys that are kind of leading the charge gives you a lot of encouragement against uh, uh, again for a team that's been up and down all season. But if they could ever just get it all right from injuries to just the kind of momentum, you know, they could really steamroll this thing. It's kind of what you need out of Verlander, too, especially with the way that things have been going in the starting rotation. They kept using, they kept showing that graphic yesterday. They did, I think they were jinxing Verlander unintentionally, where there hasn't been an Astros starter who's had a 1-2-3 oh, yeah. inning in, like, mm-hmm. however long that it was. It's a ridiculous stat. And then every time they would show it was whenever he had two outs, two outs. nobody on. Yeah. And the Red Sox, like clockwork, had a couple of two-out singles, which didn't really bother Verlander. He was able to cruise through six shutout innings. But the timing of this was great as well because for for a couple of different reasons one is the club's perspective you haven't had really quality starts from anybody other than Jonathan Patrick France for a while or Katie's been good here and there Fromber has not been good other than the no-hitter since the all-star break Christian Javier's battled 
battled, battled, has not been very good. Hunter Brown got lit up in his last start. You've been taxing the bullpen. So from a club perspective, it's exactly what the doctor ordered. You pitch deep into a game. Uh, you win a game because your starting pitcher dominated, which you know the Astros haven't had that really since the Fromber Valdez no-hitter. But then also from like a fan's perspective – it like kind of alleviates concerns of a starting rotation. It's like, okay, maybe we can rely on Justin Verlander in the postseason, even though his postseason last year was not great. From a fan's perspective, it's like, okay, well, we do have an ace at the top of our rotation that can certainly help you come postseason time. You're right. I mean, creatures of the moment are Astros fans, maybe a little bit more than most, but they do kind of react and live and die by the moment. And the moment last night told you, that you still got a guy you can heavily rely on at the top of your rotation. Now, if Fromber comes out and shoves uh, and has another good out, has a good outing to kind of really kind of catapult everybody's feelings about the starting rotation, you feel even better because now you know that there's a guy that you've been able to rely on almost the whole season in JP France, and it's just a matter of Javier and or Hunter Brown figuring out what they got to do to get back to where we've seen them be in the past. But you feel a whole hell of a lot better about the fact that your starting pitchers aren't going to be out there trying to, you know, claw and scratch their way into four or five innings just so you can turn it over to the bullpen. I thought the other thing that we talked about yesterday as something to watch was something to watch last night, too, in the fact that once Justin was through and we had hoped to get seven, he got six. But at the same time, you know, you were wondering, like you said, were they going to be in an offensive position to be able to not tax the bullpen? And the fact that I didn't have to see Ryan Presley on top of everything that Verlander did made me feel really, really good. Yeah, yeah, I like that you, know, you didn't have to – I don't think you were going to see Presley, but you didn't have to ask yourself the question. You didn't have to be in a spot where you're up one run in the ninth inning. It's like, well, who are we going to use to close this game? Uh, it was nice that the offense had the production that the offense had. Uh, what would you make of the RBI bunt from Martin Maldonado? You know, if, if, if we're going to give credit here, it's, it's all on doobie to me. Look, it was a good bunt. Yeah, it's a good sacrifice. Well, the fact of the matter is, is bunting is a lost art in baseball, period. And when you can see, like, middle infielders and guys that are supposed to be able to bunt that can't bunt, it's frustrating. Baldy laid down a really good bunt, but just the savvy base running of Dubon, and we talk about base running a lot, especially with guys like Altuve. But when Dubon saw that, you know, again, the Red Sox defense is just atrocious. And just everything that they do seems to be wrong. But when he saw that it was was just going to be a foot race uh, that he could easily win, what a savvy heads-up play by him at a time when it was a tight game and they needed that extra run, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I think I noticed something on that play that nobody else noticed. I'm pretty sure that Devers got called for obstruction on that play. It's hard to see where the umpire's at, but you notice right around third base when Dubon you know, was rounding third, Devers was like in front of him, and there was some contact there. I didn't there see was some, contact. Oh, there was some contact there. Because he was kind of on the inside of the bag? There was some contact there. Okay. there was some con- it, was, it was mild contact, but it was contact, and it slowed Dubon down. It slowed Dubon down. Now, the universal, like, obstruction is not a dead ball. It's a delayed dead ball. Mm-hmm. And the, the umpire's signal for obstruction is you yell obstruction, and then you put out, like, a half fist, like, around like waist high. And you couldn't see the third base umpire from one camera. But then when they played it from behind, like, from the right field, right center field camera, you can see the umpire, but, like, his body's obstructing his arms. So you can't fully see it, but you kind of see him lift up the arm. I'm pretty certain there was going to be obstruction on that play if Dubon was out at the plate regardless. So it kind of made the throw, and then maybe that's a reason the Devers didn't even try to apply a well, tag. Now, the throw, the throw did carry him away yeah. from the plate, but didn't even try for the tag. I wonder if he heard in his ear that there was obstruction, and that's why he didn't even bother. But the other thing to me was Devers didn't really know where he was in regards to home plate when he was running either. Because, it was a bad throw. Because you see Dubon was just very, he was very wide, and then all of a sudden, right at the end, he abruptly takes it into the left, 
and he goes behind Devers. And the throw was absolutely – there was no way you could actually hurt yourself if you're trying to bring that throw in and yeah, swing around. Way up yeah, there. Yeah, and I'm doing it left-handed, of course. But, if yeah, the fact that he could have actually really twisted himself around, but there was no way he was going to get him. And if Dubon had to slide, there was literally no way he was going to get him. No. Yeah, I think there was obstruction on that play, but it was a cool play. He was good hustle. You're right by Dubon. Dubon made that play. It was a good bunt by Maldonado, but in, in Martin Maldonado's wildest dreams, he's not thinking he's knocking in no. a run in that spot. I appreciate the sacrifice, especially for a guy who doesn't hit all that well. So I appreciate him laying, you know, laying down a bunt, sacrificing the out. Uh, but Dubon made that play. That was great base running by Dubon. Uh, but Justin Verlander was vintage JV. The offense shining whenever you don't have Jordan and Jose Altuve doesn't reach base for the first time in about 30 days. Nice to see it from the Houston Astros. What were some of your observations, some of your takeaways from that game last night? Astros 2-0. 2-0 since the team meeting. We said we'd be keeping tabs on how the Astros fare since that players only meeting. Well, they're 2-0. Since that player is only meeting. 713 780 ESPN's our HRMP listener line of Why the Face Wednesday. Houston Texans are getting closer and closer to cut down day. So, of course, Houston Texans at four as we count you down to the days ahead of the regular season kickoff between the Texans and the Ravens. 713 780 3776. We're on Twitch, twitch.tv slash ESPN 975. He's at Pac Man Joel on Twitter. I'm at Jeremy Branham. But coming up next. Alex Cora just has a punchable face, doesn't he? I really dislike Alex Cora. It's the Killer Bees on ESPN 97.5 and ESPN 92.5. Hey, before we go to the break, I want to tell you about Allstate Siding and Windows. I'm telling you about them because they're the best in the business and because they can actually save you time and also save you on your energy bills by doing something that maybe you didn't think about when you were thinking about remodeling your house. No more painting, staining, and repairing your home with home siding. From Allstate Siding and Windows, everything is taken care of for you. they got a huge selection of colors. It's all quality products. And, I mean, siding of today is more durable and will protect your house more. When you start factoring in down here in Houston with hurricane season and all the things you deal with, with wind, with weather, and the impact it can have on your house, you can find out that if you get siding, you can get more protection and it can be easier to maintain. Energy-efficient siding also will save you on your electric bills. You can keep your electric bills down in these unbelievably hot summers that we're dealing with by having that insulation, that extra layer, with what siding can provide. Hey, look, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm speaking for them because they know what they're doing. They're the best in the business. But I'm encouraging you to get in touch with Allstate Siding and Windows. See how they can help you with your siding and see how they can help you with your windows as well. Give them a call, 832-204-1936. 832-204-1936. Twelve month interest free. Save two thousand dollars off a siding job. Specials all over the place. But the most important thing: family owned and operated for over four generations. They certainly know what they're doing on a daily basis. AllstateWindowsAndSiding.com. That's A N D in the in the word. AllstateSidingAndWindows.com. All teams covered. No stalking points necessary. You're back with the Killer Bees on 97.5 and 92.5. Live from the Veritex Community Bank Studios. 8693, based on these last couple of series, who would y'all rather not miss a series between Tucker or Jordan? Uh, I mean, I think we've gotten so used to missing series without Jordan that you can miss a series without Jordan. I don't think you can miss a playoff series without Jordan, but I think that Obviously, Tuck picks up right where he left off, and that's tough when if you've been going through illness. The fact that, you know, that's one of the worst things when you can get weak, you don't eat a lot if you're not feeling good. I, I think right now you could miss a series. We've talked about that Jordan's about a half a tick off, 
sometimes in his swing? I, I would say that. I hate the question. <laughs> I hate the question. But it's the reality, right? I- I'm probably with you. I- I- I'm with you. I-, I think that Jordan's still a better offensive player. Now, he's not He's not a better offensive player currently because Kyle Tucker's in better form. Kyle Tucker's been in more of a groove than Jordan. Kyle Tucker is the better player, but I think Jordan's the better offensive player. Like, it's a weird way to say that because, you know, Jordan doesn't play great defense. He's not bad in left field, but he's not a gold glove winner like Tucker isn't right. I say Jordan's the better offensive player. Tucker's the better player. And the way that they're playing right now, their current form that they're in, yeah, I would rather have uh, Kyle Tucker available in every single game of a series versus Jordan Alvarez in every single game in a series. But I hate that you asked us that question, 8693, although it is a very, very good one. Um... Some dude asking us about Devontae Smith. Not exactly sure why. Three four zero three. Who is Diaz allowed to catch? We're better with him behind the plate. Yes, I'm glad he's at least playing, but come on. It seems like he's allowed to catch Hunter Brown and JP France. And that's yep. about it. Yep. I think you're right. I think that's where it's probably limited to now, especially because there's such a work in progress going on with Javier and Fromber. I mean, the last thing you can afford to, and you alluded to it when we were talking about all the different struggles with Fromber. It's been hot and cold, but the main thing is is now you're starting to deal with emotions as well. It's one thing if you're dealing with mechanics or velocity or things that just happen with pitchers. But the fact that we've seen him at his worst before the sports psychologist and the psychologist that is Maldi behind the dish, and we're start you know, you were starting to see it's ugly his his ugly other side head rear in terms of the way his thinking gets when how emotional he gets when things don't go his way. And when he gives up a bomb and then he goes after the next hitter and it's happened twice, that's just another thing that you look at and say, okay, from that standpoint alone, I think Maldi's the guy that can get through to him, calm him down, and try to reel him in. Whereas I don't know how much he's listening to Yiner if Yiner's like, take it easy, big dog, and comes out there to talk to him. 9458 with Jose Abreu back. How many games of him choking before we use anyone else at first base? The, Dusty's quotes about Jose Abreu yesterday. Uh, were, were pretty interesting, as a matter of fact, trying to, to bring them up. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting looking at this Dustyism. And, like, look, all due respect to Dusty, I think he's done a tremendous job this year. I certainly respect the career that Jose Abreu's had. This has not been a good year, and Jose Abreu's a really good career. Uh, Dusty said this yesterday. I'm hoping that we get Abreu, we get the Abreu that we signed. That would be huge. He also said, huge defensively, how much you missed him, which you can tell we've missed him some, and offensively big time. You've missed Jose Abreu offensively big time? Like, Yonder Diaz has been killing the baseball. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't really understand that quote from Dusty Baker. And then uh, our friends from Climbing's Tal Hill, they, they quote tweeted and put some, uh, some numbers. Yonder Diaz at first base this year, albeit a small sample size, 393 average over a 1,200 OPS. He's also saved one run defensively, which that's pretty impressive for a guy that no one thinks that can play first base all that well. I, I really don't think he can play first base all that well right now. I don't think it's a very difficult position for an athletic guy like Yonder Diaz to grow into, though. And then Jose Abreu at first base, 239 with a 648 OPS. How are you missing Jose Abreu's bat offensively? when Yonder Diaz has been clearly better. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't think I don't know if that's just kind of like the, the pseudo storyline that he wants to push. Like, was Singleton struggling and everybody starting to point a finger and get into debates about John Singleton? The one thing that Dusty might see is, well, now we can get, you know, we can work the narrative. You missed you miss Abreu. It's the guy that we need to have. It's the guy that we went out and got for a reason. No, I, I don't think it got to that point because, as you mentioned, Yiner was able to fill in you know, it, it, it very, very well, very capably. Uh, we did see the one outburst from Singleton with the two bombs. But overall, defensively is the only way that you could possibly bring up some kind of argument. And we've already said, 
you know, Abreu's not the, the the an above average first baseman yeah. by any means. He just understands by repetition alone, playing it all these years, footwork and sim- simple things. Yeah, he's it's got, just he's, yeah, he's making way more experience. situational uh, decisions as well. Like we talked about the other day, feeling the grounder. Do you try the double play? Do you go home? Do you get the out at first at, right away? Those are things you learn by getting into those positions. He hasn't been there. I think that what Yiner, if Yiner's going to play a lot of first, and look, I don't think that Yiner's going to play first base every day for at least a couple more years because of a Braves contract. Now, I think that you could potentially move Yiner to first base in 2026. Like, if you if you were to sign Yiner Diaz to, like, a, one of those contracts that Dana Brown and the, the Braves were known for where you sign a player very, very early, a Jordan type of deal where you're buying out years of arbitration and years of free agency, I could see if they sign Yiner Diaz to a long-term deal where they want to move him to first base to save his legs and to save his bat because catchers don't have as good of offensive numbers because of the wear and tear of being a catcher. We, t- we talked about it with Rushman. With, yeah, and there's there are tons of examples. Now, there's also examples that go against that. It might be odds, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have a guy that's catching every day versus a guy that's playing first base every day, it's going to cost you about 75 plate appearances over the course of a year. And if you love what that guy gives you offensively, you want more of the volume of it as opposed to having to get a lot of days off. But still, if Yonner were to be a permanent first baseman, that's still not going to come until Abreu's contract is, is done, until Abreu's no longer on this team. So there's still time for him to like learn the position, and I don't even think it's imminent. I don't think it's this offseason. I don't think it's next offseason, now the offseason after that. But I think that Yiner, with like one offseason, a spring training, focusing on only playing first base, he's a good enough athlete to pick it up. He's yeah. a far better athlete than Jose Abreu is. Yeah, and, and when you start thinking about it, it's not like a complex position. You know, you're not in your not trying to understand like playing center field and, and you know, routes to baseballs and, and, you know, a lot more decision making goes on there. I mean, it's footwork a lot and it's being able to at least field your position. And as a catcher, used to, you know, smothering ground balls and being able to understand he made a nice play the other day in terms of kind of you know getting the mitt on a tough in-between hop uh, and picking it right on on the right hop uh, and making a play so I think it's going to get better I think some of it comes naturally to him as you mentioned and and I think you're probably right I mean you know that you've got your essential DH left fielder but more DH than left field if we have it our way for the next several years but for Yiner to be that big bat or one of those big bats in the middle of the lineup with him if there's a way that you take a little load off the wheels to give him a little bit more time at the plate so he can do more things productively offensively, you start doing it now. Perhaps we've uh, buried the lead because yesterday in the second inning of the Astros game, Justin Verlander had some pitch comp problems. He, he couldn't hear. I went back and looked and watched the uh, the pitches of that. Yeah, He didn't shake off. No, no, no. I thought the first one he knew the clock was running down. Well, that's what Alex Core thinks. Well, I mean, I kind of I saw it. I was like, no, no the pitch, look. It's it's savvy baseball, and a lot of pitchers do it. Some umpires take exception to it. Some umpires are cool with it. Yeah, I don't. I don't see him. I didn't see him shaking off though. Like Alex Cora no, said I, that he shook off five times. Oh, I that, didn't see. That. I didn't see it, Justin. Now the camera doesn't show Verlander the entire time, but I didn't see Verlander shake off once. What I was talking about was, I think, in terms of whatever he was doing, processing the pitch, thinking about what he was going to throw, sequencing, etc. He looked up, and the clock was running out. And I right. thought, I, and so I thought rather than. You know, rather than take take one for the team with a ball. Sure. I, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. That's what Alex Cora thought. Okay. I disagree. I, I don't think that's what – I think he lost the pitch comp. I, I really do. You okay. you think the Cora was onto something here. Uh, whether Cora is right or wrong, it's savvy baseball. I don't mind JV doing it. I don't mind him fight, you know, doing what he did. And if he gets away with it, then no harm, no foul, and, and you end up not having to have a, a ball in the count. But I also think that I've seen enough baseball this year alone with these guys – 
that veteran pitchers especially, when they know the clock's running down, they can pull that one out of their hat. That's what Cora was, was alleging. Literally. That's what Cora was alleging. Now, I, maybe that was the case. But the interaction between the two, Cora's telling Justin Verlander to go pitch. Justin Verlander said to do something yep. uh, that uh, the cameras, the, the TV <laughs> caught for sure and Blum immediately goes, did you hear that? <laughs> we all did. The best part about that, though, from Justin Verlander was like he said it in such a nonchalant way like he was swatting off a fly. Like, I am, I'm done with you, man. Like, you know, go do what I told you to do. Go off. And then I'm just going to go over here and pitch. He's like, get out of here, man. Like, I, I love that interaction with Verlander just swatting off Alex Cora for the little fly that he is. Well, that's, again, when we talk about veteran leadership and what Justin brings to the table. You think about if that's Fromber. You think about if it's a guy that could get emotional. That's something that could rattle the cage of a young pitcher if the opposing manager came out and started pointing fingers. And JV, like you said, was just brush your shoulders off. I, I, I'm done with you. He kind of glanced into the dugout before he threw the next pitch. And then he proceeded to just mow the guy down like it was nothing and move on. Let's turn the page. Yeah, I don't think that was like a awakening his sleeping giant anything because I think Verlander was going to pitch well yesterday no matter what. His stuff was so good. But it's one of those, why bother? Like, why why even bother if you're, if you're Cora in that spot having that exchange with Justin Verlander? But there was more from Alex Cora after that exchange with Verlander. He got ejected yesterday. Threw a little temper tantrum. An old Alex Cora temper tantrum story. And how punchable is Alex Cora's face? 713-780-3776. It's the Killer Bees on ESPN 97.5 and ESPN 92.5. Most bees make honey. These Killer Bees make great sports insights. But they also make honey. Don't ask about the process. From the Veritex Community Bank Studios, it's Joel and Jeremy. Thank you, Spence. Uh, Spence, always, always classy. Uh, Matt Kawahara, who covers baseball for the Astros. Bless you. Uh, he says yeah, Michael Brantley. Right. I know it's not right. I don't know how to pronounce his name. How do you pronounce his name? You ever met the I guy? I don't know who he is. I've never met him. But he's here. He's in. He's with the Chronicle now. He covers oh, the Astros. Yeah, he came from The, the new beat guy. He came, oh, yeah, was it Oakland or San Fran? San Francisco, but he covered the A's. Oh, did he? Is he related to Poor the guy, guy. That, to the Bay Area that covers Niners and more? Tim Kawahara? Maybe. No, no, spell it with a K? No, I don't think so. You'd have to ask him. Does he spell it with a K? No, I think it's totally it's a K. Okay. Oh, is it? I don't know. Yeah, it's Kawahara. It's K-A-W-A-H-A-R-A. Kawahara. I think I pronounced it right. That sounds right. You don't think it's... It sounds like Kawahara, right? Yeah. I don't think I said Kawahara, if I'm being completely honest. But I think it's Matt Kawahara. He says that Michael Brantley's scheduled to play tonight uh, for AAA Sugarland per the Astros. So this will be the first time... This is a milestone for Brantley, Uncle Mike. First time that he'd be playing on back-to-back days on this rehab assignment. Maybe if all goes well, maybe if there's no soreness or setbacks, perhaps Michael Brantley could be joining the team out to Detroit this weekend. We'll see. Let's not put the cart ahead of the horse. Then I can start calling him by name. Yeah, you can start calling him by name. Uh, 5038, Eric the Driver. He says, known cheater Alex Cora ejected after throwing tantrum over obvious ball. This is what cracked me up about this, Blankers. At first, it was Verdugo who got thrown out. <laughs> I watched Alex Cora's postgame, and they asked Alex Cora, why did he get thrown out? He said, well, he was screaming at the umpire from the dugout. That's why he got thrown out. Like, none of the calls that the Red Sox were arguing the umpire was wasn't was right. Pat Hoberg, who's one of the best callers in the game, like the stats back that up. Yep. And actually, I pulled up the umpire scorecard today. Guess who the strikes 
know, favored it, yesterday. By about six-tenths it was of a run or something like that. Yeah, it the, favored the Red Sox. His zone favored the Red Sox point six. Yet you had two Boston Red Sox guys from their dugout get thrown out. First for Dugo and then Cora. Cora was upset with the Justin Turner call where Kendall Graven struck him out on a, on a pivotal 3-2. And, and Cora was frustrated, clearly. That ball clipped the zone. That ball clipped the, the zone. That was the proper call yeah, it was by Pat Holbrook. Yeah. And they even showed it on the on the, the broadcast. They showed the K zone. The like the one thirty second of the ball clipped the outer right. part of the strike zone. And then Cora got upset when Alex Bregman took ball four that was about six inches off the outside corner, came out there, got run. The fact that Cora was out there crying when he was wrong. I, I loved it. I loved every bit of it. I thought he was hilarious. And then did you notice when he was walking back to the dugout, he's chirping at the fans that were sitting behind oh, the dugout. Oh, he did, yeah. When he got tossed, yeah. he went right up to the fans chirping. about the dugout. Yep. Well, and the thing is, too, Turner had two con- were, that he was pissed about. The first one was, I thought the first one that he had a case there. He did. He did. And, and that, then the second one, but don't think for a second with human nature involved, don't think for a split second that that didn't factor in when you get an umpire that when you've been shown up, or attempted to be shown up, and you've got a guy that's that's coming at you and barking. Human nature says if there's a fifty-fifty caller, there's one that's on the on the cut. I'm going I'm going against the guy. I mean, that's just kind of a defense mechanism of human nature. I thought a lot of Cora though is he was up, he was just like frustrated, like super oh, sure. frustrated because it was weird. Remember game one? We talked about this a little bit yesterday. Like he looked defeated. He looked very quiet. He looked just like. Like he was sulking in the dugout, and then yesterday was the complete. Like maybe he's bipolar because yesterday was the complete opposite. Even though the calls were right, he's arguing everything. He's chirping at Verlander. He's arguing with the home plate umpire. Eventually got ejected, chirping at the crowd. Like it was a tell of two, like two cities from Alex Cora well, over the last. Well, let two me days. ask you this: I was, I was thinking about this last night to bring it up and ask you if you felt the same way. When I see Alex Cora, I see a guy that that's job is in jeopardy. I see a guy, and so I was curious to see if you thought as well that he might be feeling the fire. Because as much know. as as much as everybody points at Aaron Boone and, and the fact that the Red Sox are still on the cusp of, at least they're still in the fight for a wild card, when you see a team play defense that badly, when you see a team that you can point to your coaching staff, if it's not you personally, and just say, are you guys working on anything situationally and defensively? Because... You're like 40 errors more than everybody else in baseball. It's ridiculous how bad your defense is yeah. and the way you have breakdowns that you almost feel like, man, one night you may feel defeated because you can't. You just feel like the team's not going to do anything right, and then you come out like really, really ticked off at the world. Yeah, I think that's more of uh, who's building the roster. I think that, that baseball managers and coaches work with baseball players on baseball plays. Like, I, I, mean, I don't think that that's something that's being ignored completely. No, I don't say it's ignored. Well, but look, you, you hear the stories coming out of Chicago and the White Sox with all the, the, the no, it's dysfunction. It's a train wreck, though. But, the, but, but that's what I'm saying. But they brought back Cora after he was suspended for a year. Like I They think, obviously like the guy and think he's good. But that's – okay. Uh, what I'm saying is I think that guys can like him. I think the organization can like him. But just like anything else, coaches can have hiccups or they can let things fall through the cracks. I, we know for a fact that Joe Espada and others do a ton of work with infielders and even the guys at first base to get them a lot of grounders and go over things situationally. Uh, I, I just wonder if the Red Sox aren't doing some of those things or just have let it slip through the cracks because it's an embarrassing situation the way they play defense. 
and it looks in a lot of ways like they're playing sloppy baseball. I think it has far more to do with the the guy who built the ra- the roster, who is a chain bloom, than it is Alex Cora not working with his players. Like that's the job. You think they're just getting to the clubhouse and eating the spread and watching TV? Like they're working with them. They're just limited. Like Devers, they gave big money to, is not a good defensive third baseman, and he's forced to play third base. The Cassis guy, whatever, he plays first base. They they wanted Trevor Story to be their their full time shortstop, who's pretty good defensively, but he's been hurt the entire entire season they're playing Duvall out of position in center field like that's they're, they're trying to put round pegs into square holes they have a bad defensive team I think it's more about the the build of that roster than it has anything to do with Cora's doing and I don't like Alex Cora um I tweeted this out yesterday at Jeremy Branham I miss all the good stuff if you're if you're not following along the whenever Alex Cora because I read the Evan Drellick book thanks to, to Joe George for hooking us up with with that it's a really good book if you're an Astros fan even though you do have like the stain of who Evan Drellick is for you know kind of uncovering the, the sign-stealing scandal, which to me doesn't bother me. Like, Drellick did it as a journalist. Did he have an axe to grind because of the previous dudes that were with the Astros? Yeah, probably. But it's the history of baseball, not just the history of the Astros. But if, you, if you're interested in, like, the Astros and how they were built and how they came to be, this is a must-read for all Astros fans. But as soon as Alex Cora was throwing a tipper tantrum on the field, I immediately remembered back to an incident with Cora and Jeff Blum back in the 2017 uh, season, and I tweeted it. I tweeted it out uh, for everybody to see. And just to paraphrase, I'm not going to read the the whole book here, Winning Fixes Everything by Evan Drellick, but there was a moment when they were playing in Tampa because Hurricane Harvey moved them and Arlington wasn't willing to help out. They actually, I think, won the game. They actually, I think, they won the baseball game, but they were on the team charter on the way back. I think it was after they landed, actually. They were on the team charter after they landed back to Minute Maid Park, and they're trying to call their families, et cetera, et cetera. And Alex Cora had the music up really loud because they just won a game. Blum went up to Cora, was like, hey, can you turn it down a little bit? We're trying to get in touch with our families, see what we have to do to get picked up, to go home, et cetera, et cetera. And Cora was kind of drunk, and he was mad. And he basically challenged Jeff Blum to a fight and then was screaming and yelling at A.J. Hinch. The Astros hated him whenever he was here in 17. He was the architect with Carlos Beltran behind all the stuff that happened in 2017. And any time that I see Alex Cora act like a little baby, I am always remembered of that specific story between Blum and Alex Cora. Yeah, and, and, and you know, some of the I had heard about it before Drellick wrote about it. But you know, you know, you never know. There's two sides to every story, and you never know what you're getting and, and who saw what and how accurate it was to how it all went down. But when you actually read that as well and realize what there was not supposed to be any drinking, right? But yet it he was clearly he was yeah. he was clearly drinking. It was kinda it's kinda one of those things where it's like a rule but no one really follows it type mm-hmm. of deal. So I don't know if I blame Cora for, for, for drinking. Now he probably drank too much. Well especially when you're coming back to a, a city dealing with a natural disaster where you're trying to figure out you know, there's so much going on. I think you might want to be a, have your wits about you when you land. That that might be one of the things too. But then, wasn't it also the fact that in, in the excerpt that you uh, tweeted, the fact that he had seen Blum talking to Hinch, yeah, and, and it rubbed him the wrong way. So that's the other part of this. Alex Cora was like, if you read this book, you learn a lot about Alex Cora because he's paranoid. You you, are, you learn a lot about Jeff Luno too. Alex Cora was super paranoid. Now he knew that he was probably like on the short list of getting a managerial job at some point. There was thoughts that 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 Hinch would have fired. Alex Cora, had he not gotten a managerial job uh, elsewhere in baseball, and of course he got the Boston job and then won the World Series in 18, and somehow Mookie Betts had his best season by a mile. Mookie Betts has never been close to the player that he was in 2018 when he had Alex Cora. This year with his video coordinator back, he's doing all right. I don't even think it's close to 2018. No, I'm saying, but I mean, he even his numbers-wise, they get the video coordinator back from that team, 
and all the cheating that was suspended from baseball, and suddenly he and J.D. Martinez got a whole lot of Yeah, pop. yeah. They, they, the offense has gotten better, and Mookie Betts is having his best season since 2018, but it's still not as good as 2018. That was the only year in his career he had an OPS over 1,000. This year he's flirting with 1,000, but is under 1,000. But there was also other things where Cora was super paranoid of like people in the dugout. They even talked about one time A.J. Hinch got thrown out, and Biggio like, happened to be with the team and was catching the plane back with the team. It might have even been that Tampa series. And for some reason, Biggio was like in the tunnel. Like He wasn't watching the game from the booth, or he wasn't watching the game from the box. Like He was watching the game from the dugout tunnel, for whatever reason. And Hinch got thrown out of that game. And then Biggio was just like, well, whatever, I'm just going to stay here. And Cora stormed into A.J. Hinch's office after that game. He's like, you planted Biggio there to watch every single one of my moves and was like super paranoid, super ticked off, didn't like like Brent Strom telling him what to do with the pitching staff and stuff. He's a weirdo. He's a psychopath. I think he's bipolar. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's obviously a problem when you get into professional sports. If, if you're going to worry about every time that everybody is talking to someone and, and you're going to always think it's about you and you're always going to think it's, you know, it's someone trying to do something to you, you're not going to survive very long or you're going to have a whole lot of issues if you do because of the fact that that happens every single day and it happens across an organization. And, and if you don't think that you've seen it happen in college basketball and you've seen it happen in pro sports, you know, and I've seen it in all my years and experiences from pregame and the and and the pregame pre, the pre pre games and then who coaches and players choose to kind of align with those conversations are happening all the time with it, or people in the organization with people in the media with people across the league with other teams. If you're going to lose your bleep in mind every time conversations are happening and worry about it, especially when you're in a situation where you know you're in a good spot, you're going to get a gig. People think highly of you. The only thing that can really turn that the wrong way is no matter how qualified and talented you are for a job is if you have an attitude where you're hyper-paranoid because no one wants to hire that person. Yeah, punchable face, that Alex Cora. 713-780-ESP, an HRMP listener line, 713-780-3776. Blankers, you, you wanted to be paying close attention to the Graveman, Montero, what tier they're on when you talk about the circle of dust. Who had the advantage yesterday in terms of Dusty's circle of trust? It's the Killer Bees on ESPN 97.5 and ESPN 92.5. Hey, before we go to the break, I want to tell you about the good people at MyBookie. Look, the people at MyBookie are ready for you if you're ready for football because football's coming, baby. It is right there. It is right around the corner. We got week zero coming up in college football. We got the final week of NFL preseason. And you know what? Sometimes those games aren't as interesting as you'd like them to be. Sometimes you're watching college teams you don't have a vested interest in either way, but you want to make it more interesting. All you got to do is go to MyBookie.ag and you can make every sporting event that you want to bet on a lot more interesting and you can make some cash along the way. It's fantastic. And it's all sitting right there for you at mybookie.ag. So many fun ways to bet on football against the spread, the money line, the totals, prop bets. And right now there's futures odds on teams to win the big game. One team we know is 18,000 to one, and it's sitting right here in your backyard. If you think that that might be something that you're interested in, check that out as well. And those bonuses I mentioned at mybookie.ag, just click on the bonuses section and find out all the different ways you can leverage your deposit and get more cash in your account. There's a welcome bonus for new players, a reload bonus for existing customers, and a referral bonus if you get some of your friends to sign up too. Hop on mybookie.ag today. Start having fun right away. You can also bet on Major League Baseball, especially heading towards the playoffs and down the stretch for the pennant. Soccer, golf, and so much more. Live casino betting as well with real dealers where you can win real cash. As I always tell you, bet on anything, anytime, anywhere. With the only place I tell you to do it, it's mybookie.ag.
It's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy this next bit of brilliance with Joel and Jeremy. Live from the Veritex Community Bank Studios, it's the Killer Bees. Football season is here. College football starts on Saturday, and then you have everybody else getting started a week from Saturday. U of H plays a week from Saturday as they take on UTSA as we celebrate the first game as members of the Big 12. Because it's the first game as members of the Big 12, caller number 12 right now, 713-780-3776. You win a pair of tickets to the University of Houston game on Saturday, September 2nd, taking on top 30 UTSA. Those two teams played maybe one of the top five, top 10 games of college football a year ago. Rematch in Houston a week from Saturday. You can also, if you're not a winner, you can also get a family four-pack, which is four tickets, four hot dogs, four chips, four sodas for only $60. Head over to uhcougars.com slash tickets. Call 713-GO-COUGS. Individual tickets are just $20 as well. So hopefully uh, you get it on that. If you can't, make sure, if you don't, if you aren't a winner, make sure you uh, head over to uhcougars.com slash tickets, 713-GO-COUGS, and purchase some tickets. It's going to be a really good game a week from Saturday. Uh, White Sox and Mariners are playing baseball right now. Uh, White Sox lead it 3-1 to one in the ninth inning, but the Mariners have now loaded the bases with one out, and Julio Rodriguez stands mm. in the box. Look, postseason, like these stretch drives to try to be a postseason team, a playoff team, look, I understand that the Astros have kind of gotten into this. They're going to cruise to a division title. You can kind of rest up for the postseason. You can get your rotation in order. You can make sure everybody's well-rested as they enter the postseason. I prefer that route. But this route's highly entertaining. You have 35 games to play. The Rangers lost yesterday, so you trail the division by just a half a game. You lead Seattle by only half a game. Toronto by a game and a half. Like, hey, it's a little stressful, but it makes for higher stakes games in the regular season. It is fun. Oh, this is exactly why baseball did it. And, you know, in the last couple of years, it's, it's come to fruition to where they're just kicking back, putting their feet on the desk and going, yep, this is exactly what we wanted and we're cashing in. Uh, and it's fun. I mean, it makes everything more exciting. When you, especially when you talk about a team like the Astros that coasted for the the majority of the last several years, to where, you know, you were just like, eh, that game doesn't really matter. There's not going to be consequences. But now, so many teams still in it. The one where way it does screw everything up is right before the trade deadline. You got so many teams that still think they got an outside chance to be a playoff team that they're not selling when you need to buy. But it, it is fun. It, it's nerve wracking. I, I mean, I can't stand sometimes, you know, caring so much about the Astros and then caring so much about other teams that I need to do favors. For the Astros, and there you go. Yeah, you. It's it, it's why Major League Baseball out of the wild card. But even Major League Baseball couldn't, you know, put together three teams that are all within one game with thirty five to play in, in a division, and then they play a lot of games against one another. J. Rogers got hit on a two strike count, two pitch. Yeah, he got hit on an O two count. So bases loaded, one out, and it's now a three two White Sox lead. We'll keep you updated. Um, you, we've been watching closely the 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 pecking order in the Astros bullpen. You know, Presley obviously a top. Abreu's very clearly your eighth inning guy. I think Neris is very clearly your seventh inning guy if everybody's fully rested. After that's kind of been, you know, a topic of conversation to be debated. Sometimes it looks one way. The other times it looks another. I thought it would certainly be Kendall Graveman whenever they traded for him. We've seen some spots where Montero's actually used Graveman or where Dusty's used Montero in higher leverage spots than Graveman. Uh, what did you think of the way Dusty used the pin yesterday in terms of the, the circle of dust? Yeah, I was I was a little surprised that I thought Graveman, based on his last outing, was going to be a guy that was going to come to the forefront and be a guy that solidified a spot in that sixth, seventh you know, part of the, the back of the road, depending on who's available. I thought he was going to be one of the circle of dust trust guys. But I had also hinted again yesterday, I just think Dusty's just so loyal to a guy like Montero He's going to have his chances. And, 
Yesterday, I, I was really curious to see who he went to first and then how each guy performed. Graveman, Julia had mentioned the other day on the telecast, had tried to had found some things. He was figuring some things out as well. He didn't have a great outing, but he didn't give up a run. And then Montero goes right back to the Montero that drove everybody nuts after he signed the contract and, and, and the way he was the first half of the year plus. And it was just frustrating to see because now I'm – Going to see if Dusty just writes that one off or if Dusty pays closer attention to it because you've got other guys that can fill those roles. I Montero, to me, has been frustrating all year. Yeah, Montero has been very... I mean, he's been up and down. He got off to a horrid start to the season after getting the big contract. He started to pitch a lot better, and then yesterday didn't have a great outing. Now, these guys aren't going to be perfect. Nope. These guys aren't going to be perfect every single time that they go out. I'm not sure, though, the way that he used Graveman and Montero yesterday, Dusty, was a sign that he has Graveman higher on his pecking order than Montero. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think he wanted to save Montero because he w- didn't have Presley to be pitching in the 8th or the ninth. I think he had Naris available. He had Montero. Obviously, he had Stanek. He had Graveman. But the fact that he used Graveman earlier in the game, and I know Montero's spot came out to kind of be a, you know, mop-up a, a mop up kind of spot, I still think Montero would have been in the 8th or the ninth if it was a close game. I actually think it's the opposite. I think the way that Graveman went in the sixth and then Montero was saved for later is an indication that Dusty still has Montero ahead of Graveman. I hate that. I hate it, and I hope that's not the case because I would hope that performance matters too. And granted, you know, I've talked about the fact that when a guy that's used to high leverage situations, especially a closer, isn't in a save situation or a high leverage situation, they take the foot off the gas a little bit and things happen. But I watched Montero give up hit after hit and, and runs last night where I was like, this is not what you want to see back into your bullpen type guy. This is not the kind of thing that I hope is something that's going to be a, a more frequent occurrence for Dusty. I don't trust this guy. I don't know how Dusty can based on how rocky a season it's been. But if you're right and I'm wrong, that that's a problem, I think, for this Astros team going forward towards the playoffs because I think Graveman is proven. I think Graveman has not had the blow-ups and the hiccups that Montero has, and I think Graveman's a guy that they should rely on more. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I would have Graveman higher than Montero on my pecking order, but I, I also am hesitant to to just completely like quit on Montero. Like I don't like being prisoner of the moment. One game's going to form my decision. Montero's been really good over the last six weeks of the season. So that's something that's encouraging. Now, I'm nitpicking because I would also – I agree with you. I'd have Graveman higher than Montero in my pecking order. Graveman would be fourth. Graveman would be my fourth guy. It'd be Presley. It's Abreu. It's Neris. It's Graveman. And I think Graveman and Neris should be a lot closer than Montero and Graveman, to be completely honest with you. I think Graveman should be closer to the three than he should be to five. I agree with you completely, and I think that the two guys that are in question, and neither one of them are going anywhere by any means, but it just depends on the pecking order of where you know who's going to take what situational role. I don't think he trusts Stanek a whole lot, and I think that he really trusts Montero, and I think those are two guys that I have deep concerns about. Yeah. Um, Mariners scored two more runs, and Ellie 4-3. to three. They, ra- they were down 3-1. to one. Entering yeah, the ninth, inning, in the ninth and they've rallied to score three and they still have runners at first and second with one out so it looks like the Mariners if they hang on to win this game which I mean it's the White Sox they're, they're going to hang on to win this game uh, the Mariners for the time being will be tied with the Houston Astros yeah and that's not good you see they cleared house in the front office they fired Williams and their general manager they did too. but they're like they're, they're saying that they're going to promote their assistant general manager to be like he's the front runner to be their general manager and then you're yeah. also taught they also brought Tony La Russa back to be an advisor oh I love that yeah, funny. I think I think that's absolutely incredible. They brought Tony Larissa back. Like, are they serious about winning baseball games? No, they're not. They, if they wanted to win baseball games, they'd hire Jeff Luno. 
Oh, I, that's, yeah, you read my Twitter. Oh, did you tweet that? Jerry Branham. I sure did. I knew I saw it somewhere on Twitter. I just don't know who to credit. It's it's kind of sad that Jeff Luno has uh, been blackballed the way I, I completely think he's been blackballed. Like, there's if if you are serious about hiring the best general manager, Jeff Luno would be hired by somebody right now. He, I, he'd be a GM in baseball. I think it's because he's been blackballed, but I think he's just generally disliked. Oh yeah, they hate as him. a person. Like it's, no it's not just if he was liked as a person, he would be back. In baseball, some in some capacity, but he's just clearly not. No, that you're right. I mean, they, they, that's the reason that Luno's been blackballed. I think that he got a lot of the blame for stuff that happened, and then he's universally disliked. You know, another interesting name though, like around baseball this off season for a general general manager perspective, James Click. Like James Click has to get a job this this off season, right? Yeah. Why? Most he, likely, he'd be at the top of. He'd be the top. If I'm running a baseball organization, I'm an owner of a baseball team. I have a general manager opening. He might be the top. He might be at the top of my list. If we're if we're blackballing Jeff Luno, James Click's at the top of my list. Yeah, I, I know. I just watching White Sox Twitter implode yesterday when it sounded like they were going to just promote someone within who everyone apparently hates. Their number one was uh, was Theo Epstein. Okay, that I think that's unrealistic. I, I, don't, so think, too because, I don't think he's going to run a team again because I think he's the next commissioner of Major League Baseball. <laughs> like I, I think that's the trajectory we're headed on. Like all these rule changes, like everyone gives Rob Manfred the credit. It's mostly Theo. Theo's the one that's gone on record saying he helped break baseball and he wanted to fix it. So like Click's got to be up there at the top. But the thing is, is, he also he didn't do a lot. Like I know he rebuilt the bullpen. Now the now like the Yiner Diaz trade. Is I, I disagree. I think Click did quite a bit. I think it was the moves that Click didn't make either that like were very helpful. Like remember the whole Starling Marte, like Crane wanted Marte, Click said no, and Marte hasn't been very good. He the Jordan Alvarez contract is a unbelievable job. Yeah. Trading for Yiner Diaz in a Jane in a um in a mile straw Bill Maton trade. So bad. He found Montero. Like he, he didn't make splashes, and that might be the hang up with Click is like he's a little bit Maybe too conservative and not aggressive enough to go after like big names or spend some money. Like I think that'd be the criticism I had a click that I'd be cl- paying close attention to. Like James Click is that he's the- conservative and didn't spend, but he's done a really good job. Yeah, James Click would be the guy that, like I would want to entrust a uh, expansion team with. That's a good call. They're like or the White Sox. No, the White Sox should because the thing is like they should do a full teardown all the way. Yeah, even start more. over. But like, Click would be really interesting there. But they're just going to promote someone within. They're such a joke. Yeah, they're a joke. They're it. not a serious franchise. Reinsdorf's an idiot. Seven one three seven eight zero three seven seven six. The HRP listener line. Thirteen shows left until the Houston Texans kick off their two thousand and twenty three season. Texans at four with the Killer Bees on ESPN ninety seven five and ESPN ninety two five.